Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk about how mechanical gearing can be used to make trade-offs between torque and speed in rotational applications. Along the way, we learned about Jeff's automotive history, Carmen's dance moves, and Brian's fascination with generator failures. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 119, Gears, October 31st, 2016. So, Jeff, do you consider yourself to be a gearhead? Mm, no, not really. No? You're not always wrenching on stuff and walking around with coveralls? No. No. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what other people may have different interpretations for the term gearhead, but I always associated that with people that were working on their cars all the time. And, uh, you know, I, there was a, a period where I enjoyed working on my car some, and uh, but I had a, at one point, I had a 1968 Firebird convertible, and I loved that car, but that car broke down everywhere. And, uh, you know, I drove it out to some friends on the from the Midwest out to the East Coast, and then it broke down several times on the way out there. And then I uh, <laughs> I drove it down to see a friend of mine in New Orleans, uh, from again, from the Midwest, and it broke down a couple times on the way there and the way back. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I first started dating my wife, you know, the car, we were dating, and uh, the car would break down in the area, and, and uh, oftentimes, uh, as we got to know each other a little better, I'd call her and say, hey, can you come pick me up? The car's broken down. You know, and, and there just came a point in time where the fun was gone. I was tired of working on that car because it just kept breaking down all the time, and I miss it. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a fun, uh, you know, it, it was a 68 Firebird, so it really wasn't the muscle of the muscle car, but but it was a convertible and it looked sharp, and uh, apparently got you some women, you know, some girls. Uh, well, it got me one, one woman, my wife. I guess. All right, it's got a hundred percent success rate. There you go. If anyone out there's looking for love, get a '68 uh, Firebird. Yeah. So. Just think, if you would have uh, recorded all these breaking downs and roadside repairs, you could have had a uh, hit TV show worldwide, watched by millions. Right, I suppose. You'd have to talk with an accent though, and find some co-hosts. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so that, that sort of did it for me. And, and from there on in, I was, uh, I was pretty much buying a, uh, if it wasn't a new car, then it was one that I was pretty sure was going to run reliably. And, and, uh, the extent of my wrenching these days is, uh, replacing the battery. You know, if the battery dies, I'll, I'll change that out. But, uh, if it's anything more complicated than that, I have a mechanic that I trust and I take it to him and let him worry about it. Fair enough. Fair enough. That was definitely my thought when I uh, got my new car as well a couple of years ago. I was sick of sinking money into the old one. And down here in North Carolina, you definitely need the AC to be functional for six months out of the year. So right. <laughs> it was time for a new car. <laughs> <laughs> but I asked you if you considered yourself to be a gearhead because I was being a punny individual. And that brings us to our topic for tonight, the humble gear. Uh, not too long ago, we did an episode on an essential component of the mechanical engineer's toolbox, the bearing. And a lot of you guys wrote into us saying how much you liked the episode. 
and um, made some great suggestions for future topics. So tonight we thought we'd cover the gear and uh, give it some more treatment to the bearing. But before we dive into that, though, we want to discuss some feedback we've been getting. Uh, a lot of you guys wrote in to correct us on episode 116 that we did on the electrical grid. I don't think it was so much correction as augmentation. True, true. We are definitely not in the wrong. <laughs> well, Especially me, because I wasn't even here. That's right. Uh, although we blamed it all on you. All the mistakes that's true. I did do you. half the show notes, so I'll take 50% <laughs> of the blame. The rest of you guys can split the other 50% three ways. Right. We'll get 16 and two-thirds. Right. Well, well, part of that episode was a discussion of what happened when you tried to synchronize uh, generators into the uh, the power grid. And for the record, this was not in the notes that I did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we ended up with a couple of, of stories. One is in the comments from our, uh, our website, and so people can go there and see it. Another was a... Uh, letter that we received uh, through our comment form on the website. We received more than these two, but I thought these these two were perhaps the most uh, entertaining, so I thought we'd, we'd quickly go through these. So uh, let me start first with a story from Justin. He starts, uh, when I was a young Marine stationed in Okinawa, Japan, I connected two generators out of phase. I was operating electricity for an expeditionary runway that my unit had made to allow pr pilots to practice landing and taking off. When the jets were inbound, we were supposed to fire up the generators and the tower lights. I had two 60-kilowatt generators. The runway apparatus required about 70 kilowatts, three phase of power to work. In order to parallel the two generators, there are what is called synchronizing lights. Before I would contact the generators together, I would plug a cord between them, and the lights would then blink on both generators. The closer they would be in sync, the slower the lights would blink, when the lights shut off at the same time, I would throw the switch. I had a few jets inbound, and I fired up the two generator sets. The lights on one of the generators wouldn't come on. I was flipping out because I only had a few minutes before the jets would be there. I have a solid understanding of the sine waves, and I knew that if they are close enough and the speed was close enough, they would still contact and then even out. I did what made sense in my head. I limited the variables by getting the speed right, then hummed along with the two generators to use the sound to try to determine if the speed was the same. I threw the switch, but I was way off. <laughs> One generator essentially <laughs> fed the other and stopped the John Deere engine dead in its tracks. The generator damn near flipped over. It tipped itself <laughs> up on one skid and fell back down. At this point, I was swearing at the world, thinking, why would they leave a 19-year-old in charge of this? But the jet was still coming, so I fired the generator back up and did it again. It was a little violent, but this time it worked. I thought you might enjoy the story as you were looking for accounts of this happening. So thank you to Justin for that little story of uh, trying to synchronize a couple of generators. It's a pretty robust piece of equipment. It could be flipped over by the <laughs> torque from the, the motor being driven and uh, the generator being driven and still function the next time you fired it up. I bet there's a lot more stories like this, or at least given the YouTube age, there's probably video of somebody really screwing this up. Nobody wants to admit to it, though. Well, the best I've heard are apocryphal stories and, and you know, involve megawatt-scale equipment, but which you think would result in a national news story. But, <laughs> man, that's it, it sounds about right based on the forces involved. Right. So we have a second story from Joy, and this was a, a letter that uh, Joy wrote to us. 
And Joyce says, I just finished listening to your episode on the grid and wanted to send you some information on synchronizing generators to the grid. I've worked in a high voltage test lab and later in a power plant as a plant engineer on maintenance and capital improvement projects. So my knowledge is cursory, but we did get some high level operations instruction. As you bring the unit up to speed, a synchroscope is used to see how close the frequency of the generator is to the frequency of the grid. I wonder if this is the same lights that uh, Justin told, was telling us about in the last story. Uh, you can then adjust the rotating speed of the unit up or down to adjust your frequency to match the grid. I'm probably not the best at explaining it, but I believe this wiki page will give a good overview, and a link is provided to a synchroscope, S-Y-N-C-H-R-O-S-C-O-P-E. We'll leave that in the show notes. Uh, Continuing, also, since I worked in a coal power plant, I can confirm that startup times are very long. And we did talk about the time it took to uh, bring up various uh, sources of energy or various power uh, plants. It may vary from manufacturer to manufacturer, but the general process is that you first have to borrow steam to temperature soak the turbine. Simultaneously, you start a fire in the boiler to begin steam generation. Usually you start with an oil fire because it's easier to ignite than coal powder, then gradually add coal as the boiler comes to temperature and the turbine can accept steam. It's quite a balancing act and getting from a cold offline unit to a full load takes around eight hours and can take up to 12 hours if you're trying to keep unit emissions within a specified range for permit requirements. Uh, conversely, and I think you uh, mentioned this, Brian, conversely, gas turbines can start in around 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Gas turbines often have much higher ramp rate capabilities, that is the change in milliwatt, uh, the change in megawatts per minute. And for this reason, some companies are starting to use them in conjunction with solar plants, as solar power is 100% when the sun is up and quickly ramps to 0% as the sun sets. Uh, gas is one of the few generator types that can react that quickly. So a few notes from our episode on the grid. I mean, a few reactions. I'm surprised it was that quickly, to be honest. Eight hours actually sounds damn quick. Uh, I also would be interested to follow up if it's eight hours to a certain percentage of output. Mm, yeah. It might be, that might be eight hours to nameplate, but who knows? Um, I'd also, I'm very interested about uh, having to apply steam to the turbine ahead of actually boiling water or maybe simultaneously but i i imagine there's some really interesting thermal processes at play in order to prepare the i imagine to prepare the uniform heating of the turbine in order to prevent mechanical stresses or failures mm -hmm. that's my guess as to what's happening right well all that all that does have have to happen you're absolutely right yeah and, and i've often said I, I can't remember if i've said a lot in the show it's 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 always interesting to me that fracking and alternative energy seem diametrically opposed, mm -hmm. but you know, not because I want it, but it is pretty much a fact that fracking is a huge enabler of alternative energy right now. Given the lack of storage, I'm not saying we couldn't engineer a way out of it, but that's just the way it is at the moment. Mm. Okay. But any other thoughts on power engineering? Well, we had some other comments, but uh, the the notes got a little uh, got a little lengthy there. We should really do another show on that. The grid part two. Yeah, I feel like we should do three shows on the grid. That way, we have three phases of the series. 
Oh, I like the way you're thinking because I don't think we even got two variable tap transformers or do we even get to high 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 voltage DC? Mm, I don't believe we did. And there was some discussion of uh, uh, transformers that I think didn't make it into the into the final show. Yeah, I, I think only about a third of our notes we actually got through. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, then. Well, well, maybe we'll have another episode before the end of the year. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, what uh, what do we have in store for this episode, though, Carmen? Uh, I don't know, man. Yeah, I feel like I would just act dumb about gears, and you could, you could lecture me again. Mm. You know. What are the coolest gears you guys have seen? I mean, I was just at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum this weekend, so... I saw a lot of cool gear sets. Oh, so the place is just rotten with gears? Pretty much. You know, you get to look at all these various assemblies for different airplanes and spacecraft and lunar modules and such. So it's pretty mm-hmm. cool to look into. I was too busy trying to, you know, argue with my brother about what sort of vacuum tube circuits we were seeing, though. I once saw a some sort of gear assembly that had a million to one turns rate uh, or uh, gear ratio. Mm-hmm. It was insane. And it, it, like the, it, the cutaway of it actually working was this really weird, like oscillating, you know, two gears on either end and then oscillating pieces between them, linking them up. Oh, so it wasn't just one stage that went one to a million. Oh, no, okay. no, no. Like it, it wasn't like super fine tooth gears. It was like, you know, <laughs> It looked like it was like two gears and then magic between them. Interesting. I should probably see if I can find that in a link to put in the show notes. But yeah, until then, it will just be the magic gears. Maybe Jeff, as a gearhead, will be able to shine some light on that. <laughs> being, being in the semiconductor industry, uh, there's not a lot of moving parts. So <laughs> I don't do motor drivers, so I don't see a lot of gears. Right. Oh, the manufacturing of there's or manufacturing of semiconductors. There's tons of gears. That's true. Especially uh, my new job, uh, the fabs are fairly automated, but I play no part in that role. Unless they use linear motors and they're cheating. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Beats the hell out of me. Although, as we'll learn, you still can do gears to uh, you know linear motion. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jeff? Did you do any complicated gearing back in your machining desi- or machine design days? Mm, well, I never got into designing the gears. You know, machine design was pretty much. Uh, my involvement was limited to picking out the gear system. So, yeah, but you still had to design systems with some gearing. I'm assuming. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that's what I mean. Not yeah, not actually designing the gears. Uh, you know, applying the gears. I guess. Yeah, I, that's a fairly, at least on the mechanical side, that's fairly common. You've you've got uh, rotary input usually from motors, and oftentimes that has to be uh, converted in speed or torque. Uh, or you want to convert your rotary motion to linear motion, and and uh, or you want to change the direction to travel, that kind of thing. All that can be done with gears. Yeah, yeah. So that highlights the the two main functions of gears. Basically, is uh, trading off torque and speed, and changing the direction of rotation, whether you're going you know clockwise to counterclockwise, or you know rotation to linear motion. Um, those are the the two big functions of a gear. And uh, I, I like to think of the torque speed trade-off um, kind of like a transformer in electrical engineering. So in a transformer, you step up either current or voltage, um, but power is conserved from the primary to the secondary side. And with gearing, you're trading off torque and speed. You can step one or the other up or down, but overall power is still conserved because we all live in the same universe where that's a fact. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we could, if we could create energy, uh, we wouldn't need gas, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I guess we could we could put a third function of a gear on there. Uh, it's it's usually used in the logo of many engineering societies. <laughs> it is yes, especially mechanical engineering. Yeah, societies yeah. spokes. Yeah, uh, not really spokes anything. Symbol, symbol of engineering. Isn't the open source hardware? Doesn't that have a gear in that logo? Uh, possibly. I know Osh Park is yes. kind of shaped like a gear. Yeah. Osh Park also. Yeah. Yeah. Ask me, has a gear in it, doesn't it? Probably. American Society of Mechanical Engineers. Uh, I maybe buried somewhere in their logo. I don't think it's just a gear. But let me. Well, it's, you know, it's mechanical engineers. There's got to be like two or three of them. <laughs> oh, now we're talking about a planetary gear set. You're getting ahead of us. <laughs> no, the ASME logo just has the letters ASME and it has a little wire model of the Earth, I guess, of a globe behind it. So no gears in that logo. Wonderful. So w- would you could you use gears in uh, conjunction with bearings there, Jeff? Would you ever put a bearing in between a gear and a shaft? I'm trying to link our two episodes here. It's called a uh, juxtaposition. Mm. Or a segue. A segue, okay. Something. I, yeah. I think that's that thing you ride that's vertical. That's true, which uh, has gears in it. It has gears in it, yeah. Well, so a lot of times, of course, you've you've got uh you've got a rotating shaft, whether usually driven by a motor. Uh and so we we have our torque generation. Sometimes we want to stay in torque, sometimes we want to convert into force, but but you know, our our actuator is this is this rotating shaft. And so uh we do have bearings within the motors to keep the shaft turning smoothly. So it's, we don't lose a lot of that energy that we're putting into the motor and we want to convert into torque. So we have, you know, hopefully good bearings inside the motor. And, and then beyond that, if we want to extend the shaft or we need to run the shaft from the motor to some other place, uh, then usually it's, it's important that we have bearings on whatever that shaft extension is, as well as, as, as long as we keep passing power down that shaft processing that power through that shaft and you know from gear to gear no matter how many gear sets we have in the in the in the gear train uh, we use bearings to make sure the the shaft rotates uh, smoothly and and uh, uh, without a lot of energy loss awesome so the gears themselves are usually mounted pretty solidly to the shaft well you certainly have uh there are occasions I mean, there'd, there'd be no point in putting a a you know shaft a bearing on a shaft and then a, a gear around directly around that that bearing well it it depends sometimes you need that Ooh, our favorite phrase <laughs> in, 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 sometimes <laughs> if uh, uh it's convenient to have a shaft where you need a gear that is going to be basically an idler gear uh, you can change the direction of of rotation so sometimes you need some place to put that so sometimes you will put a bearing on a shaft and the purpose is just you need some place to put that gear so it can rotate freely and so sometimes that happens Okay. I'm, I've, I've limited car uh, repair experience. I've never t- torn apart a transmission or anything, so I've never seen anything complicated with gears. I'm, I'm limited to tinker toy knowledge growing up. <laughs> Maybe some basic Lego stuff. Right. So I suppose the the basic thing to think about when we talk about gears, and, and let's start with just a a spur gear because that's probably the most simple type of gear. And that's the type that normally when you see the logo drawn, that's what gets drawn as a, a spur gear. And so basically you have a, uh, a cylindrical center and extending from that cylindrical center, you have teeth, uh, which are usually 
somewhat tapered uh, so that uh, they don't, A, they don't have a lot of sharp edges on the interior so you don't have stress risers. Uh, but also you want the, as the teeth engage with one another, you want them to smoothly slide against one another, but they're also shaped so that as they contact one another, they're trying to keep the force between the two gears perpendicular to the axis of rotation so that, that it tends to cause the shafts to rotate and to transmit the, the energy cleanly through the shafts as opposed to basically binding up. What you don't want is the, is the two, uh, the two gears to bind up with one another. And so the profile of these teeth uh, is rather important. And there's, and as there are with fasteners, you know, there are a number of different uh, standards uh, for the threads. There are similarly are a number of different fasteners or uh, different uh, standards for the uh, profile of the gear teeth. Yeah. Yeah. So it, like extending the uh, transformer analogy, you, you want to make sure you Input power is 100% equal to output power, but in an, uh, you know, in an ideal world, that would be true, but there are loss factors, whether it's parasitic resistance or inductance. And so it sounds like the analog here into gears would be how the teeth are designed. So they mesh well together. Absolutely. Every, every little bit of stress and strain. And you were talking about keeping the forces perpendicular to where the teeth interact. It would, it would all be eating away at your power transfer. That is that is absolutely right. All right. Is is most of the transmission loss in uh, the gear interaction, or is it going to be the surrounding rolling resistance of whatever uh, mechanical linkages you have? And I imagine it depends. It, it depends. <laughs> You're a shitty gear designer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and so it depends. Um, Gears are designed, the teeth profiles are designed uh, to accomplish different things. So some of them are designed to run very quietly. Uh, some of them are designed to run at high speed. Some of them are designed to uh, withstand great vibration or shock. Uh, others are designed to run very precisely and have very, uh, very little uh, slop or backlash. Uh, and so it it depends on what you're trying to do. There's there, there's a wide variety of gears out there designed for various purposes. Okay, so let's let's unpack that uh, sentence there. You you mentioned a few few terms, slop and backlash. What are what are those? Yeah, I mean, I know I'm an expert in everything, but for for our listeners who may not know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so again, we can take the idea of our our uh, just two spur gears. And as you bring those teeth together, if you brought them just enough so that they overlapped just a little bit, but they really weren't fully engaged, you could hold one of them uh, still, and you could rotate the other one, and it would just barely click back and forth, and it would it would it would eventually run into the other gear, uh, the one tooth that was captured by the other the 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 other teeth of the other gear. You could run it back and forth, but there would be a certain amount of slop there. It would run forward one direction, then you'd hit, and you'd run back the other direction. Mm-hmm. And so now you, if you took the center line of the two gears, that is the center of rotation of those two, and you move them closer together, well, now there'd be a little less slop in there. You could run one forward and back, and there'd be a little less slop. And so now you could put them even closer together, and uh, if you hit the right point, basically the design point where it's been designed to run, well, then you should get very little uh, slop when you rotate. You try to rotate one. Basically, uh, there should be almost indiscernible amount of backlash. Uh, obviously, if you if you engage the mesh too much, 
then you bind up the gear system and it can't turn. And if it's too loose, if the, if the separation between the gear center lines is too much, then you get too much backlash. So uh, for most gear sets, you can look them up in tables and it will give you the preferred distance between the two center lines so that uh, the gears don't have backlash or don't have excessive backlash, but can still uh, turn smoothly while meshing with one another. So slop is how far apart the, I guess, the teeth are from one another when they engage. And if you have too much or too little slop, you, you, you won't be at that optimum depth where the teeth interact. Yeah, I, usually the, okay. the the backlash is usually specified in in degrees of rotation. So you know, somebody gotcha. say you've got a quarter degree of backlash or ten degrees of backlash, that'd be a lot. Um, and that's and that's how far you can rotate before it would make contact. Yes. Yes. Yeah, gotcha. so, so, so if you were turning it all the time in one direction, this is not a big deal. Uh, so, so if you're starting and stopping, yes. So if you're if you're if you're starting and stopping and and positioning is a big issue, then every time you come to a stop, then this backlash gets taken up in the other direction. So is this like uh, you know in a, in a manual car when you're you're shifting gears, um, you know, you're you're disconnecting the engine from the uh, the transmission, and when you when you go to bring them together, you know, when you come off the clutch, is that I'm sure it's more complicated than this, but are you effectively changing the amount of slot between the gears and if you do a bad gear shift you'll you'll bind them up no no all right then see no when you're when you're shifting manually shifting you're you're disengaging from one set of gears and engaging with a different set of gears uh hence the difference between first gear uh where you've got a a big ratio between the uh the driving gear and the driven gear and, uh, so you, you have a low speed, but you got a lot of torque, so you can get going off the off the line at a red light. Exactly. And when you're racing for pinks, you know you got to defend your girl's honor because mm-hmm. we're in the fifties. <laughs> <laughs> well, I live my life a quarter mile at a time. P- pretty much, yeah. Grease is the word. If you had, yeah. you guys haven't heard, it's got move, it's got feeling, it's the time, it's a place, it's emotion. <laughs> right. It's the way we are feeling. I'm a little scared that you know all these words. Dude, I love Greece. <laughs> I was quoting uh, Fast and the Furious, but probably as well be Greece. Greece is where it's at, man. T-Birds for life. <laughs> um, I, uh, Jeff, I'm a little bit curious as to where is a situation where, uh, you know, minimizing slop isn't necessarily uh, awesome. Like... Uh, uh, having a very close meshing, accurate set of gears can be expensive to manufacture. Mm-hmm. So let's say instead of fancy metal gears, you want something that can be injection molded out of plastic. So you st- yeah. start to give a little bit of tolerance there just by the manufacturing method. Now you have to make sure that <clears throat> you're driving, say, a little toy model car, and you have to make sure that you know, only one in a million of these toy cars doesn't run when it shows up underneath the Christmas tree. So it's better to have slop because uh, the child playing with the toy is not really going to notice the slop in the gear system as long as when they, you know, they, you know, they move the car, the little propeller on top turns, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's usually a matter of cost. You know, you, you don't want a slop in your gear train, but it's a, it's a trade-off between, you know, cost and, and, uh, uh, availability of parts. Yeah, if, gotcha. you're, if you're not at an ideal power transfer on a uh, 
low-end Christmas toy, no one's probably going to come calling for your job as long as you made it cheaply and it doesn't break too much. Right, right. You- well, they've already bought the toys, so you're kind of <laughs> – True, but you don't have to do a recall. There. Yeah, but if you're designing spacecraft and Mars landers, you probably don't want a lot of slop. But I don't know. We kind of got a little sidetracked there, Jeff. You started talking about cars after my uh, oh, failed yes. attempt at an analogy. We said something about a difference at first gear when you're low speed, high torque, and you're you're shifting gears. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you've you've basically have the the engine <clears throat> doesn't know which gear it's supposed to be in, right? You, you've got a drivetrain, and the and your engine is is uh, uh, got a drive shaft, and and you know it has to engage with the transmission to get the power to the wheels, and so in your manual transmission. Uh, you're depressing the clutch and you're disengaging and then you've got to, uh, the, there's a synchronizer to mesh the, the speed of the gears back up as you engage into the next set of gears. Mm-hmm. In uh, modern cars, back in the old days, you used to have to double clutch. Right. So it's, it's basically going back to earlier when we were talking about synchronizing, uh, you know, two generators on the grid. You have to make sure they're at the same, same frequency, the same speed. Yes. Gotcha. So anyway, the the uh, we have we have these spur gears, and we'll stick for the time being. We'll stick with spur gears because it's the e- easiest to understand. Uh, we have these spur gears, and we have to have these these gears engage with one another. And we could design two gears to engage with one another, very specially designing them so that that we had the right size. Uh, of each. But as you might imagine, we generally want to have some flexibility in which gear sizes we have. So what is important uh, in this gear mesh for delivering torque and controlling speed is the ratio of the number of teeth between the two gears. And what's important is not the number of teeth, really. It is the effective radius at which the force between the gears is transmitted. And so when those, when those teeth engage, obviously when, when one gear is, is doing the turning, is trying to force something forward and the other, and the other gear has the load that's being turned, the, the fact that we have some amount of, of backlash, we have some amount of slop, means that only one, you know, theoretically there may be some deformation to the gear tooth, but there's only one point at which the two gears are contacting. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So there's a lot of there's a lot of stress on the teeth. Yes, there is a lot of stress on the teeth, right? And so that gets in the whole area of of you know hardening the surface of the teeth, but you don't want to harden the entire gear because then it makes it less uh, able to handle shock, uh, those sorts of things. So you sort of want like a a marshmallow center. I mean, I'm exaggerating here, but you kind of want a marshmallow center and a very crusty outside. So the crusty outside resists the the wear of the teeth uh, rubbing against one another. Uh, but you one want of those a, Dove ice cream bars, yeah, Klondike bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you want a, a soft inside normally, uh, so that it can it won't uh, it won't crack if you, if it uh, sees a lot of of shock loading. So what happens is is the point at which these teeth, at which this force is transmitted from one gear to the other gear, is going to be at a certain radius from the shaft at which this gear is rotating about. And so you can quickly see that if if the shaft is a, uh, if this radius at which the power is transmitted is a long way from the center shaft, that means we have a pretty big gear. And if the force is very close to the shaft, that means we have a fairly small gear. 
Makes uh, sense so far. Sticking with you. Okay. So, mm-hmm. but what happens is we, we sort of, uh, uh, from a common sense standpoint, know that the number of teeth has to be an integer number. Uh, yeah. That is, if we have yeah. a gear with two and a half you, teeth. You confine yourself to three dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll simplify, we'll simplify it. Yeah. So uh, two and a half is a little low. Let's say if, if we, if we, we have a gear with 23 and a half teeth, that's. Somebody broke one. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> broke one. That's not a, usually a good thing. <laughs> so what we need is an integer number of teeth. But we also know that we need the we need the teeth to engage with one another, right? So we will talk about a gear having a particular pitch, uh, which is the distance between a point on one tooth uh, and the corresponding point on an adjacent tooth. So in other adjacent words, adjacent on the same gear, adjacent on the same gear. Okay. So so the point is we want for these for these gears to mesh smoothly. You can imagine that basically. The gear teeth have to be the same size. That is, you can't have big gear teeth on one gear and teeny tiny little teeth on the other gear. They won't mesh. Yes. So, so when we, we buy two gears that are going to mesh with one another, they have to be of the same pitch. Hmm. Makes sense. And as you might imagine, if we put an integer number of teeth on this gear, that requires that the pitch diameter that is the, the, the diameter at which we measure this pitch, the, the distance between the teeth, will grow bigger as we have more teeth in the gear and smaller as we have fewer teeth in the gear. This is, feel, this is feeling very quantized. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're no, only allowed fract- certain energy levels. It's a, it's a graduate class, fractal gears. <laughs> but, but that is very much the point, right? It's definitely a... a quantized problem in that when when you have a limited number of gears uh, to interact uh, in the system, you have to wisely pick your gear ratios. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so the gear ratios, is it's commonly the ratio of the number of teeth, but that assumes that you have the same tooth pitch, uh, correct? Yeah. Okay. So if you have 10 teeth on one and 30 on the other, you have a, a, three, you know, a one to three gear ratio. That's right. Okay. And That's when the, the 10 tooth, well, I guess we should use some, some, uh, terminology here. So the, the gear, if it, in a two gear system is the larger gear with the most teeth and the pinion is the smallest gear with the fewest teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have the pinion driving the gear, you have a, uh, is that a positive gear ratio or a negative gear ratio? Uh, is I it, or not a positive, but a, or positive negative, but, is it in terms of torque or speed? Because the small one driving the pinion driving the gear is higher torque but lower speed, mm-hmm. and the gear driving the pinion is higher speed but lower torque. Yeah. So, and people will, depending on the industry and the you know the application, will talk about torque increase or torque decrease, velocity increase, velocity decrease. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a there's not a common notation that I know of. Uh, okay. for that. So you have to specify when you talk about the, the gear ratio if you're in terms of speed or torque. Yeah, and you'll find in various textbooks every time that, that there's some discussion of this trade-off between uh, torque and speed, um, you have to check carefully because they'll say, you know, torque 1 over torque 2 is equal to N1 over N2, but you have to see which one they're, which one they're using. You know, the, the, uh, uh, there are various notations for 
Uh, are you talking about the small gear divided by the big gear teeth? Or are you talking the big gear number of big gear teeth over the small gear teeth? Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes it, you know, it's uh, uh, you've got to pay pay attention to see that uh, you've got the right right output for your equation. Gotcha. Now, sometimes in, in with transformers, and I'm not an expert in this by any means because I don't do isolated design. Um, you know, you could just leave it all in. Oh no, powers conserved. Never mind. Okay, keep going. <laughs> I was going to say if you just did the power, but it's conserved in an ideal transformer and an ideal gear system, so you couldn't just do power one over power two. That was that was silly of me. Well, so so you're going to have in any kind of gear train situation, you will have some sort of power loss. Yeah, yeah, and same with the transformer, but it doesn't make sense because you're assuming you're trying to get the optimum one, so they're going to be as close as they can. Right. To, yeah, to write the equations in terms of power instead of torque or speed, it wouldn't make much sense. Unless I'm wrong. No, you're you're fine. I'm just doing a quick power calculation here. Um, we, you know, if we have a a driving shaft uh, is going to have a certain uh, input power, and we're going to have a driven shaft uh, that's going to have a certain amount of output power, and we're transmitting. You know, we're converting the 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 power that we're sending down one shaft through the gear as a force that contacts at the point where the two teeth, the 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 teeth mesh, and and head out the other direction. And so there's going to be some amount of energy loss, power loss at that connection. There's friction, rubbing, uh, and so we'll have some sort slop. of <laughs> slop. Well, the slop shouldn't if you as long as you're turning in the same direction, the slop shouldn't come into play there. Uh, okay, it's more of a startup or sh- slow down thing. Yeah, but there's certain things like lubrication, you know, and, yeah. and rubbing the teeth, and and so that sort of thing. And so you, you'll have some sort of friction loss or or, or power loss, efficiency loss uh, at that point. But but the point I want to make is that we can think of the torque being generated. Let's uh, let's start with the driven gear, the driven shaft, and we'll call that shaft one, and it has a gear on it and we'll say that that's gear one and it has n one teeth and we'll have the the other gear and we'll call that shaft two and that will have n two teeth okay and we know that because we've picked the same pitch for these gears we can we can cause those gears to mesh and we will according to the manufacturer's guideline depending on the number of teeth that each gear has we can look it up in a table and we can see how far apart the center lines of those two shaft should be. And that's, you know, you could, you can do the calculations, but it's much easier to look it up in the design handbook and say, okay, of course, <laughs> here, here's the separation we need between these two shafts so that we have uh, proper separation uh, between the two teeth. So the torque we send down shaft one, you may remember that uh, torque is a, uh, we can consider that as a force acting at a distance. And the two teeth are, remember they're, they're, they're meshing at this one point that there's a force being transmitted from gear one to gear two at some radius. So let's call that on gear on shaft one, let's call that R one for radius one. And on, on shaft two or gear two, let's call that that distance radius two. Well, what happens is at that point that the two teeth mesh, that force has to be the same on both sides. You know, uh, the stupid Newton's law. Yeah, stupid Newton's law. Right. <laughs> so so whatever that whatever that force is is at that point, let's call it F. Okay. 
So we end up with two equations. We end up with torque one is equal to that F times whatever radius one is. And we end up, so that's the torque on shaft one. And we end up with the torque on shaft two being the same force, same F times R2. So if I'm writing this out, I've got tau one equals FR1 and tau two equals FR2. Well, that's pretty easy to do the division. If I want to know the ratio of the torques, that's tau one over tau two, which is FR1 over FR2. Well, guess what? Those Fs cancel. It's the same force acting on both places. So I end up with R1 over R2. So that's basically saying the proportion of the radiuses at which this force is acting from the center line of the shafts tells me what the ratio of the torques is. No matter what the input torque is, whether it's small, whether it's big, the ratio between the torque being delivered through these two shafts is based on that ratio of radiuses. And because we know that meshing gears have a fixed pitch, then that radius, or what we, which we could also convert to a pitch diameter, if we divide it by the pitch of the teeth, will give us an integer number. So that R1 over R2, we can also write as N1 over N2, where N1 is the number of teeth on the driving gear, and N2 is the number of teeth on the driven gear. And so that's why when we, uh, if we consider no, uh, you know, no efficiency loss, and usually when we're roughing this out, that's what we do is we consider it with 100% efficiency first. We oh, same we, thing with uh, switching inverters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so the, so we we look at the ratio of the of the number of teeth. So if I want a big ratio, uh, you know, n two becomes a hundred and and n one becomes ten. And if I want to have it turn the other way, I want to get, you know, I want to, uh, you know, I can I can trade off rotational speed uh, for torque. And depending on whether I want the torque to get bigger or smaller, or the rotational speed to get bigger or smaller, I can pick these ratios. And again, as you said, uh, Brian, there's a trade-off to be made. If you have, a, if you want a big ratio, here's the problem. You need a damn big gear on one side and a teeny tiny mm-hmm. little gear on the other side. And that's sometimes tough to accomplish because there's a limit on how big you can make the big gear and how small you can make the small gear. So if, if that becomes a problem, we'll end up with sets of gears, drivetrains that have stages of these things. So if you can't, let's say you can't, you can't afford more than a 10 to 1 ratio because the size won't fit into your, you know, your mechanical housing, whatever you're, you're building, then you may say, well, if I need a 100 to 1 ratio, I'll go 10 to 1 from shaft 1 to shaft 2. Then I'll go 10 to 1 from shaft 2 to shaft 3. Guess what? Shaft 1 to shaft 3, I have my 100 to 1 ratio. I just have to do it in two steps. Makes sense to me. <laughs> so you know we've mentioned uh you know you need an even number of teeth but um correct me if i'm wrong like sometimes in cars you know the transmission gearing uh you know the the ratio of torque between first to second or whatever isn't necessarily uh you know an even even integer um is that tricks with the gears are they doing something else with that no, you, so your drive ratios are going to be dependent upon the number of teeth between each set of gears that you're engaging. Yeah. And, and the number of teeth have to be an integer, but the ratio between the two gears oh, and the number okay. of teeth doesn't have yeah. to be a ratio. So if I have, if I have 30 on one gear and 10 on the other gear, 
then I'm going to have, depending on which way I want to look at it, I've either got three to one or 0.333 as my drive ratio. If I have 10 teeth on one and I switch it out for a, my 30 tooth gear, I switch out with 24 teeth. You now, gotcha. now I've got a 2.4 or the inverse of what of 2.4, whatever that happens to be. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, that, that's a simple solution. I was overcomplicating it, I guess. Yeah, even though you have the, an integer number of teeth, you don't, your drive ratio doesn't have to be an integer number. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Um, so one of the reasons we want to do this uh, all the time is, is uh, because we need to change the speed uh, that we're delivering the power from whatever our actuator is. So if you have your your uh, automobile, of course you you know that you can you can stomp on the gas and you can rev depending on what car model you have. You know you can rev that up to two or three thousand or ten thousand. Ten thousand a little high. You know the the F one cars go nineteen thousand RPM. I think Honda fits a respectable six five before redline or not six five. Sorry, maybe yeah six five seven before redline. Okay, but is that a sustained? 19k meaning they can use the engine more than once that uh, they hit that coming down at least my recollection this been in, uh the uh f1 series came to indianapolis for about six years and i went to all the f1 races and so my understanding at least as they came down the front straight it was just such a a high-pitched scream i mean it was like uh it was like nasty wasps coming down just, you know, with a megaphone, just as loud as they could possibly be coming down that front straight. It would make your ears just scream. You know, uh, I you had to put on hearing, uh, I had to put on hearing protection, but my understanding was that those engines were, run, were turning 19,000 RPM as they came down the front straight. Now, again, I'm not a, I'm not a car person, so maybe, maybe that's not the case, but that was, that's my recollection. Um, but, but in any case, you can imagine that the tires don't need to turn at 19,000 RPM, right? We need the tires to turn slower. And, and more practically, if you look at, at most small electronic devices that have motion, you have a small DC motor. And those DC motors, brush DC motors that cost, you know, two to five dollars oftentimes, but may, you know, not very expensive ones can cost two or five hundred dollars. They can get pretty pricey depending on what you're trying to do with them. But, but the cheap ones, you know, usually want to turn it like a thousand or two thousand RPM. Well, that's normally much faster than we need the speed. You know, that's too quickly for what we need uh, the motion to be, and so we need gears. And so that's where these gearing systems come in. We need some sort of uh, means for stepping down the speed. At the same time, those motors don't provide too much torque. And the same thing with the engine, right? The engine uh, turning at nineteen thousand RPM. Uh, screams like a banshee, but it does. We want more torque at the tire, right? Well, that's beautiful, right? We trade off. We put a gearing system, and as we gear up on on that system, we we trade that off. Our speed gets our output speed gets lower and lower, but our torque gets higher and higher. So, as Carmen pointed out earlier, in your in your automobile, your first gear is going to be trading everything for speed for torque. You want as much torque as you can get, but you don't need to go very fast when you're in first gear because you're traveling, you know, zero to 10 miles an hour. Then as you start picking up speed, you shift into second, which is a lower ratio. Well, now you get uh, less torque, but you can, uh, you know, you accommodate more speed. It's going to turn more quickly, which is what you want. And then when you, you know, as you shift up through the gears and you get to fourth gear, or if your car has it, fifth gear, you're on the, you're on the highway. You don't need fast acceleration, which means you don't need torque. Remember, 
well, you may not remember if you're a mechanical engineering, uh, torque is equal to the moment of inertia times acceleration. And so if we want fast acceleration, we need lots of torque. Well, if you're moving, if you're running down the highway at 80 miles an hour, you don't need lots of acceleration normally. So you don't need lots of torque. You just need the thing to be turning quickly. Uh, and so you have a, a low gear ratio so that your, your output is turning very quickly, but at the cost of not too much torque. Well, unless you're one of those uh, terrible people that's always trying to pass every single car on the highway because you're treating it like a race. <laughs> well, let's let's face it. It depends on what car you're driving, but you know, that's true. Many of the performance cars, they can do a, you know they can do 150 miles an hour. Uh, so we they, shouldn't they, be doing that on the highway. <laughs> well, they sh- yeah, they shouldn't be, but but you know, they, they yeah. If you if you bought it, you would certainly use it. <laughs> you, at some at some yeah, if you bought it at some point, you're probably going to want to get out on the back road and try it and see what what happens. So uh, that's not or a, or a cheap motorcycle. Or, yeah, well, those are the guys that scare me, right? The, that are come screaming like a banshee out of nowhere. Uh, and, and here in Indiana, you can ride without a helmet. So those guys that ride, you know, go flying past me at 90 miles an hour without a helmet, uh, or even a, uh, a leather jacket on, they scare the crap out of me. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely spooky stuff. Yep. So, uh, we've been talking so far just about the, the simple spur gear. You guys want to maybe tell our listeners about some other types of gears that are out there? Well, if you have a DC motor and you're trying to turn the tires on a little toy, then, you know, spur gears will work great uh, because you are going from rotational motion to rotational motion. But a lot of times we want to go to linear motion. So uh, one of the ways we will do that is to use what's called a rack and pinion arrangement. So pinion generally means the smallest gear in the set. Well, in a rack and pinion, there's only one gear in the set, so I guess it automatically gets called the pinion. But the idea is that you take you take a spur gear, and then you you mesh it with not another gear, but a a flat piece that has uh, gear teeth in it. So you have like a a rectangular piece of metal, and you machine. Looks like a comb. Yeah, it looks like a comb. You, ex- excellent. You you machine those teeth in there such that the spur gear will mesh with the the linear teeth of this uh, what we call a rack. And so at this point, you can put some sort of linear bearings or sliding uh, you know surface, uh, and now you can cr- you can convert rotary motion to linear as you rotate the gear. It causes the rack to move, or you can change linear motion into rotary motion. That is, you move the rack and it causes the pinion to move. And by causing the pinion to move, you cause that shaft to move. So a rack and pinion arrangement allows us to quickly convert either from rotary to linear or linear to rotary motion. One example of this being like the uh, steering wheel on your car. As you turn the wheel, you get linear motion of the wheels. Sure. So, so what happens with rack and pinion? Um, you know, obviously when you have two circular gears running against each other, you can just keep going and going and going because the gear keeps rotating. Uh, you cannot have an infinite pinion. What happens? You have to design then. It's more complicated to design because you have to figure <laughs> out what happens when you run out of pinion. Needs more pinion. Yes. Yes. It, absolutely. You, you have to. You, you, uh, uh, you either need to design the mechanism so that it has some sort of hard stop so that it can't disengage because obviously if if the rack keeps going it's going to disengage from the gear the pinion gear yeah so you either have to create hard stops uh that 
prevent that from doing or you have to other, somehow otherwise have like a, uh, in a lot of the, the machinery that I designed, we would have sensors for checking into travel uh, to make sure that something like that didn't happen. And if you hit end of travel, it should shut down the machine and then you'd have a, a you know, safety limit switch at, be, just beyond that. So if it missed the first switch and it hit the second switch, you'd just shut down the machine completely. So, you know, the, fir- the first one was to tell the, the thing to stop travel, but if it didn't and it kept going, you'd, you'd have an over travel switch that would shut down, do an e-stop on the machine if it hit that. Gotcha. Assuming, assuming you didn't hit any of those shutdown switches, you have to account for bi-directional motion then too. Otherwise, it's a, a use-once system, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, so here's a good example of, of why where backlash becomes important. So if you're using this and, and you're running the gear, you know, you're running it back and forth. If you're doing uh, adjust something with this rack and pinion mechanism and we wanted to do so precisely, well, the more slop you have in the, the interface between the gear and the, the teeth of the rack – when every time you change direction, the gear is going to make a certain amount of rotation before the rack follows. And that's, you know, that becomes very difficult to, uh, to account for. Uh, uh, and so uh, you have to do as much as you can to limit the amount of backlash you have in that, in that, uh, in the mesh between the gear and the rack. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Uh, so we've covered rack and pinion. We've mentioned spur gears, and we've we discussed a little bit uh, some of the downfalls of spur gears are um, you know there's high stresses on the teeth, and you have just that small mating surface you know between the two teeth. Uh, they're also very noisy. So one thing you can do to combat this is switch to a helical gear system. And so much like the spur gear, you still have uh, two parallel shafts, but instead of straight teeth. Um, you have angled teeth, and as the gears engage with each other on mesh, you have gradual contact made between the teeth, and so there's less stress. And uh, another benefit of this is it's much quieter than spur gears. And if you're really clever and you get the angles just right, you can even make these at 90 degrees to simultaneously switch the direction of travel as well, the direction of rotation. Right. Right. Now, now the downside, of course, is because you have these teeth that are are sort of uh, turning at the same time you have this profile so you can do this is helical gears tend to be much more expensive than spur gears yes yeah it's probably a lot harder to make a helical gear <laughs> it is uh, the, <laughs> the other thing that we we just to quickly finish up with spur gears is the other consideration is the the width of the tooth mm-hmm. and so you you'll find you know, uh, you'll find everything from from spur gears that are very narrow to those that are very wide. And obviously, as you increase the width of the tooth, it is able to absorb uh, more force, contact force, and therefore can carry more torque. So you have to size the gear at the same time you size the shaft. So the shafts get bigger in diameter as you carry more torque, and the width of the tooth face has to become wider also as you transfer uh, more to, uh, more torque. So would a helical gear then, uh, assuming you could use the same size shaft to offer more torque than a spur gear because there's more uh, contact area between the teeth? Yes. So the short answer is that, yes, the, the helical gear is stronger. And, and, and the reason uh, for, for the greater ability to handle torque transmission is that the helical gears have more teeth meshing. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, they have more load-bearing area, and therefore, they can uh, uh, transmit uh, more torque at, at a time. Gotcha. 
Uh, but but the reason that straight gears uh, or what we call straight cut gears are generally used in race car transmissions, that's not general automotive. Uh, the, the helicals are often used in, in general transmissions. But in race transmissions, they use this, the uh, straight gears is because um, if you use a helical gear, you produce a certain amount of uh, thrust down the length of the shaft. That is this, the curving, engaging nature not only produces a, a force that is perpendicular to the axis of rotation, but it also produces an additional thrust down the length of the shaft. Mm-hmm. And so this generally means that you need a stronger transmission case to, to contain these thrust loads and race cars don't want heavy transmission cases. Uh, and so they tend to use uh, straight gears instead of helical gears. But uh, in general, yeah, the, the helical gear can, uh, uh, can transmit greater torque. Nice. Nice. So moving on to our, our next, uh, I, I, I hope this is generally right. I, I, I'm sure there's some listener just, you know, face palming going, oh, screaming, so at so the, wrong. screaming at their car stereo <laughs> as they go into work. Right. Um, <laughs> that's fine. We're always looking for guests. Exactly. Yeah. Come on and set us straight. That's right. <laughs> You should say, you should say something that's totally wrong. I'm sure I have. <laughs> um, so so I mentioned when I introduced the helical gears that if you get the angles just right, um, you know you can mate the two gears at 90 degrees to change the direction of uh, rotation. And mm-hmm. um, so does that make the bevel a the beveled gear a special case of the helical gear because bevels are always mounted at um, 90 degrees. Yeah, I guess you could say that. So if you have uh, two spur gears and we take one of them and we turn it at 90 degrees. So now we, we have one shaft that's running at 90 degrees to the other. Now, obviously, they can't be at the same on the same plane because they will the two shafts will interfere with one another. So we shift one of the shafts up above or below the other shaft. And at this point, it's, it's tough to get them to turn. So what we do is we we put the. Uh, the teeth, we, we machine them at, at, at 45 degrees relative to one another. Okay. Mate them together. You have a nice 90 degree angle between the two gears and you can change the direction of rotation. So the term, the term bevel generally applies to any time you, you have this 45 degree interface. So what I'm describing, what I describe with the straight gears is, is also known as, as miter gears, but you can also then have what looks like your your uh, helical gear sort of engaged in a bevel form, and that, that's known as a spiral bevel gear. And a spiral bevel gear, now the teeth are turning and rotating at the same time. They're sort of curved like a... a like a thing that's curved. <laughs> like a thing that's curved, right. <laughs> I'm starting to come to the limit of my, my descriptive abilities on, on the shapes of these curves. It'd be much easier with a... Uh, a uh, picture here powerpoint yes. slide yes and and you know if you're if you're pulling your hair out because we're not painting a great word picture we have tons of references and handbooks and stuff that we're going to link to in the show notes so you can get a picture of what all these gears look like <laughs> if we were doing a video podcast this would be much easier <laughs> all right so probably my favorite type of gear because uh, it's also my favorite dance move is the worm <laughs> And the worm. Uh, the worm, yes. Uh, not that I can do the worm, but uh, that's probably a good thing because it's terribly cliche from what I understand. And I'm a terrible dancer, so I don't need to get more cliche. 
Oh, but, surely, surely, surely at the, uh, you know, the last wedding you were at, you got out on the dance floor and decided to do the worm. No, no. I do, <laughs> I do the, uh, you know, the typical loser guy, you know, you, you grab, grab, grab a, an ankle and you grab a, uh, grab your head, you, you bring your elbow to your knee, you know, that, whatever, whatever the hell that dance is called. That's, that's my go-to if someone pushes me into the circle. It's usually good for a laugh and then I go back to the bar to get another drink. There you go. All right. All right. Uh, so the worm gear is useful for uh, large gear reductions. You know, you could do many tens to hundreds of reductions. Um, so may- maybe Brian's million to one system used a couple worm gears here and there. And right. uh, typically, if you want to picture this, it's, you know, usually like a, a spur gear and, um, you know, kind of looks like a, a screw, you know, sitting on top of it. Am I right there, Jeff? That's that's pretty close. That, that, that's pretty much it. It's, it's yeah. like you took a you took a fastener thread and uh, got the thread to interface mesh with the teeth of the spur gear, and so the the shape of the teeth on the spur gear are a little different than uh, just the typical spur gear. They the the teeth tend to be a little smaller uh, because they have to interface with basically what's a thread, basically with what's a thread on the worm, uh, and they they have a certain amount of curve so that as the uh, as the worm is turning, then then these teeth have to have to fit again into that rotating spiral on the uh, on the worm, and so the the teeth tend to to uh, have kind of a curved profile as you go across the face of the of the gear. But you're absolutely right; it gives you uh, if you're limited in space, it allows you to have gear ratios that aren't achievable uh, in the same sort of space with spur gears. Uh, the downside is that you're going to have more friction. Uh, and so it'll be a less efficient uh, transmission of power. Yes, yes. But it also offers the added feature, uh, depending on what you're designing, is that there's a, a natural locking system involved with the worm gear um, because you can use the worm to turn the gear, but you can't reverse it and use the gear to turn the worm. So you only get rotation in one direction, not both. Right. And basically that's a fact, that's a factor of the friction between the worm gear and the, and the, uh, the worm wheel, what we're calling the spur gear, but it's really not a spur gear. It's a worm wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say that you have a mechanism you're using to lift something heavy up in the air. Uh, and so you, you, you use a typical spur system, you know, and so let's say you're willing to trade off, uh, torque for speed. So you're trying to raise this thing up and you're lifting a boat or you're lifting something heavy. Well, you've got a lot of time, right? So as, as long as it's not too hard to turn, you can tr- make a lot of turns and you're willing to do that. So you're turning and you're not, you, you know, you have a certain amount of arm strength, but you don't have to put huge amounts of torque into the system. Uh, but on the, on the output side, on the other side of the, of the spur gears, uh, the thing is turning very slowly, but you get a lot of more torque. So you're able to, you know, use that for, for lifting the mechanism. The problem is when you get your system lifted to wherever it wants to go and you let go of the handle, what happens? Well, gravity's still there and gravity is going to go boom, 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 boom. And it's going to drive this, you know, your heavy load is going to go back towards the ground. And that little handle is going to go spinning like crazy uh, as, as everything, all the work you've done reverses itself and comes back down to the ground. And you have to fill paperwork and call OSHA. And <laughs> right. It's just no fun for anybody. So so either either you have to have some sort of latching mechanism to keep the thing from backing down, or you can use something like a worm gear so that you do the rotation. And so it's not as efficient going up, but you know that because of the friction between the worm gear and the uh, the wheel, it's not going to back itself down. 
Pros and cons. Trade-offs, just like everything else in engineering. <laughs> yep. I, for one, am glad I don't have anything dropped on my head. Thank you. Thanks to Worm Gear. Thanks to Worm Gears. <laughs> <laughs> and the people smart enough to use them. Uh, uh, another type of gear we can cover probably pretty quickly, although I'm sure you could write a whole book about them. Uh, sprockets. And these are typically used, they sort of kind of look like a spur gear, but instead of meshing with another gear, you use it to run a belt or a chain. So you're meshing the gear to, um, you know, the, the links in the chain. Mm-hmm. And there, you'll find these in a lot of uh, conveyor belt systems and, you know, your 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 bike gear. Yes. So the, the principle is pretty much the same in gears, except that you're now using the belt uh, or chain instead of a mesh between the sprockets. So all the things we talked about before, about the number of teeth and the radius and the transmission of torque, all that's the same. But now, uh, instead of uh, using the the meshing of the teeth, uh, of the gear teeth, you now have the sprockets that tend to have a little pointier end and, you know, fit into, you know, most people have seen a bike chain, you know, the sprocket fits up into the chain and now you use the chain to transmit force over to the other sprocket, which then in turn you know, is attached to a different shaft. And so the ratio between the sprockets uh, is the same as the ratio in teeth between gears. Uh, you're just now using a belt or a chain to uh, transmit the force. Okay. And then our uh, our final one that we'll talk about, and there's, you know, probably a billion more different types of gears here. If we want to keep this podcast <laughs> going for five hours, we could we go down the entire list, uh, is the planetary gear set. And this is, um, you know, the most complex gear set gear system we've talked about so far tonight as you need at least three pieces um you have the sun the planets and the ring and you know you can lock one or two of these pieces and you can gear up gear down change rotation um depending on how you set it up and which of these pieces you're locking whether it's the ring the sun the planets uh so it's complicated but it gives you the most uh Features, I guess, for lack of a better term, and how you're designing your system. So, is this typically what's used in a car differential? No, that's just a box of math. <laughs> yes, planetary systems are used in car differentials. I've played with a few of these when they're exposed, and and uh, and there's a uh, cutaway of it, and it's it's again another one of those mechanical systems that looks magical whenever you start really diving into it like where you grab one side you know you grab one wheel and the other one starts turning when it hadn't been turning right but uh i'm much more familiar with planetary gear sets uh say for the output of dc motors or or motor systems and in the uh in the differential for the car everything is set up as a bevel gear because you've got your input that you're trying to turn 90 degrees from the drive shaft coming back from the motor from the engine and then turn 90 degrees to get out to the uh the shafts for the rear wheels so you can you can make a planetary gear system as some combination of these other types that we've talked about it doesn't all have to be do they all have to be bevels or could you do like bevels and spurs and just depends on how complicated you want to get it Oh, I, I, I hate to, because I don't, I don't know all the possibilities. I hate to, uh, to put any limitations on what could be done. Uh, I'm always amazed at the number of creative people or creative inventions that people have come up with. So, <laughs> so the answer is it depends. Woo-hoo. The answer is it, it depends. Right. Awesome. But, it, but in the case of a car differential, you're typically doing a planetary gear set of beveled gears. 
Yeah, and and so the the advantage is that uh, we talked before about a spur gear where you're limited in the size of the big gear. Usually it's the size of the big gear. You can only go so big before you run out of space in your application. And so the the uh, uh, a planetary gear set, the advantage of this is that it gives you a, a much higher uh, gear ratio. So in a smaller space, you can get a much higher uh, gear ratio. Gotcha. And to clarify on some of the, the terms I mentioned before, you know, I said you need uh, at least three pieces, the sun, a planet, or planets, and a ring. Um, so the, the sun typically sits, much like the solar system, right in the center of the gear assembly. And you have the planets that rotate around the sun. And what holds the planets and the sun together is this outer ring gear. Correct so far, Jeff? Yes, you're correct. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> So, so one one area you said you, you'd really want to use planetary gears is in, in space constrained applications. Would would a watch be something like this? I, don't, I can't say I know much about watchmaking. I know nothing about watchmaking. I have, <laughs> have no idea. Fair enough. I imagine there's got to be some sort of planetary gear with a watch. Yeah, I I mean the place where I see it most often is is you know when I I deal with stuff that have uh, electric drive motors, and mm-hmm. if you ha- if you put uh, if you attach a DC motor to a gearbox, we usually, usually call that a gear motor, uh, the combination of gearbox and motor. And uh, typically what you'll see is if you have a spur gear in the system, the output shaft of the gear motor is offset from the center of the motor. And that's because you have to put a spur, because the shaft of the motor comes out the middle just by the the way a motor works, a common DC motor, the shaft has to come out the middle. So you put a spur gear on the end of that shaft, and now whatever sh- whatever spur gear you interface to the to the one on the motor shaft is going to be offset. Its center line is offset from the motor shaft, and so you run that out the front of the of the uh, gear motor. You'll have a shaft that's offset from the center of the motor. So usually mm-hmm. that's a sign that you have a spur gear and you end up with ratios of like, you know, two to one, five to one, 10 to one, 15 to one. But at, you can see as that spur gear gets bigger and bigger, you get further and further offset from the center of the motor. And usually there's a limit, you know, these motors aren't huge. There's a limit to how far you can be offset before it just becomes unwieldy. Uh, so usually th- those are cheaper, they're pretty rugged, but if you need a higher gear ratio, then you do you go to a planetary gear set, uh, and those, because of the arrangement of the gears in the planetary gear set, allow you to drive the output shaft down the same center line as the motor, and you 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 can get ratios of hundred to one, two hundred to one. Uh, I, I'm sure you can get higher depending on how much you know. You, it becomes less efficient as the gearing goes up, but. Uh, you can get much higher gearing ratios than you can with just a, a spur gear output. Gotcha. Is I don't know. I feel like I see planetary gears fairly often whenever they're combining multiple torque sources. Is is that? I mean, for example, I I think there there was a lot of hubbub over the Chevy Volt's uh, gearing system, which can simultaneously combine. I believe the torques from two different electric motors and a gas 
generator? Yeah, the degrees of freedom on a planetary gear set are much greater than just a simple spur. I mean, basically, you have one degree of freedom on a, on a spur gear. Right? Yeah. You, you, re, you turn one shaft, and ignoring slop or backlash, the other one turns, right? There's, you know, there's one degree of freedom. But on a, a uh, planetary gear set, you have the, the mm-hmm. uh, without doing any study, there may be additional degrees of rotation that I'm not thinking about. But I can see where you've got at least three degrees of rotation uh, that you where it was with a simple spur gear interface, you only have one. So, uh, yeah, there's lots of neat things you can do with, as you're aware, you know, the uh, differential on your car. You know, you turn one wheel and the other wheel turns. You know, there's there's interactions between all the inputs to the system. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now that we've thoroughly confused ourselves and uh, possibly some listeners, yes, I think it's uh, <laughs> time to wind this one down. Sure. I, I, you know, there's there should be a limit on how many mistakes somebody can make in a limited period of time. It's a, it's a good point. Yeah, we may as well limit ours here. <laughs> All right. So yeah, like we said, we'll we'll throw some some gear handbooks and a couple articles into the show notes, so you guys can get a uh, some pictures of what the hell we're talking about, and you know, get it going in your head, start to develop your engineering intuition. <laughs> Call back to earlier shows. <laughs> um. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll take it from there. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, I have enjoyed it. I'm, uh, uh, hoping that, uh, maybe, uh, some of our listeners will write in and tell us where we got some stuff right or got it wrong. And, yeah. uh, or if you can share some interesting, uh, crazy gear setups you've done, that would be great too. That'd be excellent. And, uh, we're always looking for guests. So if, if you're brave enough to come in and, and, uh, chat with us for an hour or so, we'd, we'd love to have you do that. Yeah. Drop us a line. All right, guys. Have a good one. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>